Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Right, well, my next guest is a guy who I saw on Twitter. And I thought, yeah, I think I could get on quite well with this guy. And uh, after chasing you around, Darren, for what feels like four weeks just missing each other, I feel like I've come to know you quite well now. <laughs> yeah, well, I've put him down a little bit on the Twitter uh, since that um, since that day, but yeah, it's taken a while to get um, to get sorted. But we're here. we're here. Yeah, now tell me what was going on that day. You you seem to be quite charged about it. Uh, was it was it the European Cup that you were about to play? Uh, no, it was the um, the Prem Cup. Um, it, it was a long week. It was a week where the coaches made it pretty obvious that the group of us that were playing in that semi-final which had been hyped up in the local media of the first time Worcester played in a semi-final competitive semi-final for um forever I think it was um but it was made quite clear to the group of us during the week that we weren't the guys that would be playing the following week um which I think was a Harlequins Prem game mm. so straight away as a group we're pretty we're pretty annoyed um obviously the, the Prem is is the big one it's the one that everyone wants to play in and and like I said, we were told dead straight that this group of players, apart from the, I think there were three guys that played for us on that day, on that Friday night against Saris, that um, were dead certs for the following week for Harlequins. But the rest of us, we were, we thought this might be a game that we're fighting for um, a place in the team. It wasn't to be. And then once the team got announced, um, reading the, the comments, um, reading the comments about the, the t- team selection, you sort of read some pretty harsh comments about how we were going to lose a game. It was a, it was a game that we wanted to win, but with the team we were putting out, we were going to lose. So I think for, for me personally, it all sort of boiled over and um, resulted in, um, in that tweet. Yeah. It's a difficult one, you know, because you know, I've been doing this podcasting malarkey for about four years now and I can see both sides of it. I mean, I mean, first of all, I can see the fan side because I used to post all sorts of stupid things on Twitter because I don't think you realize that it's actually another person on the other side of that, you know, you think, uh, you know, big, uh, big, burly rugby player probably get probably used to loads of criticism, so on and so forth. It's just not really the case. You know, there is someone on the other side of it. And sometimes these things do sting. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, big, burly professionals used to criticism. Um, you certainly expect it from coaches. Um, I've got a brother who's not strong criticising me after a performance. So we, we are used to it. We're used to kind of like, you know, hearing it from people we respect and, um, and we want to hear it from. But when you sort of think, well, actually, there's a group of us that are a bit, you know, for want of a better phrase, a bit pissed off that we've already been told we're not looked in for selection the following week. Um, as a group, we sort of said to each other, well, do you know what, let's just give this a good crap. Saris were obviously not going to bring their, their out-and-out first team, although whichever team they bring, um, third or fourth string is going to be pretty decent. So... We knew we were going to be up against a good, um, a good Saris team. And we thought, you know what, let's just give it a best shot. Um, <laughs> the, the likelihood is if we did get to the final, it may not even be the same group of players playing in that final. Um, so let's just give it a good shot. And, and on the day, we actually performed pretty well. I think statistically, we were probably the better team. And we certainly had more carries and um, more possession and territory. It was just on the day we didn't manage to finish. But like, like I said, it doesn't matter who reads the comments, whether you're a 14-year-old kid or whether you're a 34-year-old professional, if, if someone's criticising, you still take it um, sometimes a little bit too too much to heart, but other times you can sort of brush it off easily. That wasn't one of those occasions where I, I could brush it off, and, and I know there was a group of other lads um, in the change room that felt the same. 
Yeah, well, I I, I got to say, I I did quite enjoy you. Let uh, I did quite enjoy you letting them have it. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, like you know, support the supporters have got their fans for them, and I've learned pretty quickly never to read a fans for them because the moment you type your name in, oh god, no, don't do that. Yeah, if you're expecting any compliments, I wouldn't bother. Um, but I think professionals, we get taught, we get taught in the media how to answer questions from the local newspapers and you know, local um, media outlets that come in and want to have a chat to you and you get given the same boring answers when really sometimes as a rugby player you just want to scream in their face and tell them that actually that's not what I believe and that's not why I agree with. Um, and so social media sometimes can be that way that we can just sort of argue back as it were and if the fans um, feel that they, you know, don't like the team that they, the uh, the coaches have picked, at least the players can have a, a way of, you know, like you know, going back at them and saying, do you know what, well, your supporter, support us, and, and whatever happens at the end of the game, at least you know we've given them just 10 Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, um, it is tough, and I think it's also tough in the situation that Worcester are in too, because, you know, you look at those team sheets, they don't tend to change too much, you know, I, for a lot of fans, I guess, they're looking at the team sheet they see in the Premiership week in, week out, and because it doesn't change, for them, you know, a lot of these lads that they're seeing playing on that weekend, they're just not the same boys. No, exactly, and, uh, and I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that's a frustration amongst that group of players who played in that Saris game is that the Premiership team doesn't change. Barring injuries, most of the time it's the same 15 and then the rest of us are sort of scrapping out for places on the bench which over the last sort of block of three Prem games haven't really changed, again, apart from injuries. So you're sort of thinking, well, if form's not going to get me in the team, what is? And, and that frustration does boil over and... and but the, the way that we can show our frustration and show our potential is by these cup games. And obviously we've got a European game coming up in the future. But at the time, that semi-final was a great great way for some of us that haven't been playing in the, the Premiership team uh, recently um, to go out there and, and showcase what we've got in front of the coaches. Um, and also some of the younger guys that maybe some of the supporters have heard of but haven't seen play a lot. But, you know, obviously working day in day out with them, you know how good they are. And yeah. You know they're they're good enough to be in the Premiership team as well. So, you know, like I said, when you read those comments and you know how good the player um, players playing around you are and how much they've they've worked hard in training to uh, to get a place in the team, it's frustrating to see that the the supporters want the big names in those games when sometimes it's not the big names who are playing the best rugby. It's it's the the little guys that nobody knows of that are maybe training the hardest and and playing the best. But unfortunately, because of the, the way the team's selected, they don't get a chance. Yeah, it's so it's so tough though because you know big name players are big name players for a reason, I, I guess. Yeah. But people need opportunity. You know, opportunity is just as important as talent. If you don't get the opportunity to start with, you'll you'll frankly just never know. Well, that's it. I'm, I'm, I think back at all the guys that I've had the opportunity. Ted Hill, for example, is probably the best um, best one from our club over the recent season. He only got the opportunity because of injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the likelihood is if there wasn't injuries in the back row at the time that Ted Hill was playing, he may have not played in that Leicester game and come off the bench to score two winning tries. Um, and that may, that would have not, you know, that would have led to him not getting an England call up. The, the, the point is he got a chance and he, and he took it and rightly so, he's a class player and that's why he's stuck in the, the you know, in the first team ever since and, and hence why he's got his, his uh, England cap. But it is about taking those opportunities and sometimes it is an injury and sometimes it's a lack of form. If somebody in your position is not playing mm. well enough, then there has to, you know, I personally feel there has to be a rotation where the, the next guy comes in and, and if he plays well, he sticks in that, in that position and until he starts playing badly or somebody else is playing well in those sort of cup games or in the, um, the Premier League game or sorry, sort of old A-League games, then, you know, that rotation comes through and that creates a healthy, competitive environment of, team sort of stays the same every week and get a bit stale. Uh, I see the point of what the coaches are doing here because, well, okay, have you ever heard of the, have you ever heard of that law, law on Twitter, which is if an argument goes on tw- on in Twitter long enough, you'll eventually end up with Hitler? <laughs> no, I've not. Right. That's good. So if I listen to anyone talk about rugby for too long, it always results in talking about Ben Darwin. Ben Darwin's this sports psychology guy who, frankly, I listen to everything he says. And 
one of the things that he talks about is the importance of a set of a settled squad, settled combinations. You know, the combination between the second row and the hooker, and how and how that develops. So when you first say that, I'm thinking, mm, I kind of see the point with the coaches. But on the other hand, rugby is so attritional that you actually need to make sure you've got the strength in depth and other combinations coming through. And also, I don't know how you then go about spotting the next generation or that next person. And not to mention, how do you make training com- competitive? Well, that's it. I mean, that's that's what I've struggled with. I, I understand if, if something's working well, then, you know, you keep it. And we go through pre-season games at the start of the season so that combinations have, have a bit of an opportunity to, to get used to each other leading into the first block of prem games. But I think sort of post-Christmas, it, it, it's almost a free-for-all. If, if things are working, yeah, by all means, stick to it. Um, obviously, if you're, if you're 9 and 10 are working well together, uh, you're 10 and 12 are communicating well together and things are flying, then you, know, you stick with it and, and what have you. But without the rotation... From past experiences, without that rotation, you, you, people get complacent. Um, people who aren't involved start to not give up because we're, we're, we're paid good money to not give up. But you start to think, well, there's only so many times I can keep knocking on the coach's door and asking why I'm not in the team or what I need to, to, like, to do to improve before you get given the same answers every week and, and you realise it's not going to make any difference. So. Yeah. I think sort of you know the, the odd little tweak here and there keeps everyone on their toes. Certainly the guys in the starting lineup. You know if they feel that they're two bad performances away from being dropped, you know all of a sudden their performances start to improve. Um, and, and the same for the guys that are on the bench or, or fighting for place on the bench. If you give them the carrot that you know there's an opportunity, a genuine opportunity, because I think we've all been told there's an opportunity. <laughs> all know it's not, um, but if you've got that genuine opportunity to, to work your way back into the team, I think your training levels will improve because you know the coaches are keeping an eye on how you're training. And, and if you're, if every individual's training improves, then all of a sudden as a squad, as a group, um, you start to push each other. And that's, that's sort of the, the frustration in terms of being a member of that group just outside of the first team at the moment is that we want competition uh, we want to be pushing for that first team and have a genuine chance. If we're not good enough, we're not good enough. By all means, let the coaches tell us we're not good enough. It's fine. I'm big yeah. enough, and it, totally it, enough to take that on the chin. But, um, you know, when you've got something to work towards, you want to know that there's definitely uh, definitely something there. It raises really interesting squad composition questions. I was chatting to a guy the other day who, you know, being blunt about it, and actually, you know, this, this was a conversation, he knows he is second choice. In fact, he knows that his job is to show up every day, be professional and be ready in yeah. case the first, the first choice goes down. And he's comfortable with that. And although I kind of admire the professionalism to do that, I, I also think, how many of those guys do I want in my squad? Because on the other hand, you want the guy who desperately wants that starting job rather than the guy who's just willing to settle for, you know, that second, you know, like, like the backup quarterback. I don't think that's an always the best mindset. Well, you nailed it on the head a minute ago when you said, you know, rugby is nutritional. At the end of the day, somebody could go down and be out for the rest of the season, and that second choice has to step up. Um, and has to be your first choice for the rest of the season. Now, if he, you know, I don't obviously know who that guy is, but if you know your second choice and you know that for the rest of the season, are you really going to be pushing yourself in training to improve on what you need to improve on? Or, you know, just happy to be there waiting for that? 20, 25 minutes off the bench on a Saturday. It's, it's difficult. Um, coaches, obviously, well, I think most coaches will have a first, second, third, fourth choice in their mind in every position. Um, but there has to be a time where that overlaps and all of a sudden, yeah, you might be second choice, but actually this week you're first because the guy in front of you is not playing well enough and you've got to be ready for it, haven't you, really? Yeah. Now, just taking the conversation off in a slightly different way here, um, I'm quite interested in, you know, your, in your progression through rugby because... Reading up about your career, you know, you seem to have done things pretty much the pretty much the hard way around. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, well, I, I was part of the Bristol Academy when I went to college, um, which was <laughs> Filton College. Yeah, thank you. Uh, for that. Which is now South Gloucestershire, which I think was the um, the, the hold up you guys had a, a few weeks back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I started there and um, I, I captained them in my final or second year, final year. Um, I thought that I was sort of a shoo-in for a, an academy contract at Bristol, which didn't work out. Um, so I actually went and got a part-time job at JJB, of all places, just making sure it was sports-specific. Um, 
and uh, train part-time with Bristol, who were in the Premiership at the time, but I was obviously nowhere near that sort of level. Um, I was still in 18 straight out of college. So, yeah, part-time at Bristol, managed to earn myself a contract um, with them at the end of that season uh, to be full-time, and then sort of the following season broke into the first team when they were in the Championship. Um, and then two years later, when my contracts um, expired, went down to Cornwall for three years, which I think was probably the best move I've ever made, to be honest. It sort of forced me out of home. I think I would have been sort of 28, 29, still living at home if I had it my way. But um, forced me out of home, which made me grow up off the pitch. And it also gave me a lot of responsibility on it as well. At the time, it was a small small um, squad down there at Pirates. They'd lost a lot of guys that previous season to the Premiership. So they're in that rebuilding phase. Um, so, um, yeah, it was uh, it was good three years down then, and this is now my fourth year, so I've had to sort of yo-yo a little bit down to come back up, but um, sort of it all makes it worthwhile, especially when you're, you're working at a club like Worcester and the facilities we've got here, sort of puts everything else into a bit of perspective. Yeah, I mean, I definitely find the guys who have been in the Championship appreciate what they've got a lot more. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure you'd like to have gone to the Saracens Academy, made it to the first team and just sailed you know, sailed through and become a property millionaire. But, um, yeah, I, I look at the clubs that you've been, you've been at, like, the, like that Bristol team. I assume, like, was that the time when, I'm guessing, Nathan Budgets around that, uh, that era, Lee Robinson? Yeah, so, um, so that premier that I was part-time, you had, well, you had the guys before they all sort of left when they got relegated, but you had Dan Ward-Smith. That's uh, right, yeah. That, uh, Sean Perry was there, Nathan Budget, Roy Winters, who was probably um, my sort of idol growing up, um, or certainly coming through the system down at Bristol. He was a fantastic, um, fantastic leader and a great role model. And then, um, yeah, Mariana Sambusetti and, and that sort of, I think Rob Sadoli was also at Bristol in that premier as yeah. well. So, you had a, yeah, there was a lot of guys to learn off of, um, a lot of strong characters as well, I think couple of seasons before that relegation Bristol finished third I think it was um, and that was that squad then was pretty much built around those individuals um, and the experience that they they brought to the squad unfortunately I think age caught up with, with some and, and you know rugby just sort of disappeared off the off the radar a little bit Bristol at that time um, yeah. and you know relegation followed but the following season I managed to sort of pick my head in the first team a little bit which was good yeah Dan, Dan Ward Smith is one of the like the like great players of English rugby. Yeah, the guy was an absolute freak of an athlete. I remember seeing him with his top off and just thinking, if I ever look that one day, <laughs> I'll wear a top again. Yeah. He was just, you know, if you thought of what a modern day rugby player should look like, he that was it. Um, I, I think he had a knee injury, which sort of held him back a little bit, and he, he obviously moved on to wasps as well. But um, in terms of just absolute athlete, I don't think I've come across a better one. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, well. again, another interesting story. I think he came from, like, Plymouth or somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think Bristol, when they first got promoted, well, I don't, can't remember what year it was, but when they got promoted um, under Richard Hill, they sort of seemed to sign a lot of... Um, Championship-based players. I had Lee Robinson, I think, it was Plymouth as well. The R. Scott brothers both came from Plymouth. That's right, yeah. Um, Sean Perry came from Coventry. So I think they really built it around, as you said, you know, guys that have had it hard, have had to come through the hard way, haven't had the, the luxury of, you know, nice academies where you, you get looked after really well. They've had to sort of go out and and earn their bread and, and make sure that they're tough enough that when they get the opportunity that they can take it. And, and that's, I, I think that's probably why they did pretty well in these couple of years that they were back in the Prem and why they finished so strongly that season mark and they came for it. Yeah, 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 because um, remember, yeah, they got into the they got into the playoffs. Yeah, and... yeah, I, I'm sure they, I think they finished third overall and just lost in the semi final of the playoffs. Um, and uh, if I'm right, Roy Winter's got Player of the Year, Premiership Player of the Year as well. So yeah. it was a pretty massive season for Bristol that year. I think that was the year that they had that um, 18 phases before the drop goal against Gloucester. Yeah, an interesting little factoid for you. Um, you probably already know this. Sean Perry made his England debut that year. And he made his England debut as England vice-captain. As England vice-captain, there you go. There you go. Little, little factoid. <laughs> now, now, the thing which I found really interesting or a club I find re- really interesting is Cornish Pirates and what goes on down there because yeah. it just feels like they are ready for um, 
an expansion in an expansion into the big time. It feels like they've got the sort of support base, and if they haven't, they've certainly got a very passionate support base. Yeah, um, I don't think they've got a huge support base in numbers, but I think well, I know for a fact that in a lot of the away games that we we would play, bearing in mind it's three hours to Bristol, Is so anything really? north of Bristol, you know, you're looking at an extra three or four hours for games like Doncaster and Nottingham. We would always have a dozen dozen supporters, 20 supporters, which, you know, for Cornwall, is a lot of away support, really, because it's a long way. It's seven hours, seven hours in the car, seven hours worth of petrol, 14 hours worth of petrol, accommodation, and all of a sudden it all adds up. So, yeah, there's certainly the, the support down there, and I think I think there's a little factoid for you. There's, there's more football teams in Cornwall than rugby teams, but I think rugby is definitely the biggest um, the biggest sport down there. It's the one that everyone wants to to do well at, and, and I really hope for Cornwall and, and the Pirates' sake that they they get this stadium built in the next few years and yeah, can do something like what Exeter have done and get a, a team together, which I know um, Gavin Page, the, the coaches down there, are, are dead set on getting a good group of guys on on decent contracts, and, and hopefully in a few years' time, give it a push for promotion. If obviously the league hasn't been um, been closed off to them by them. Yeah. Now I'm going to apologise to my listeners because I always ask this question of anyone who's ever played in uh, at, at Cornish Pirates. Did you did you play with Alan Paver? And can you tell yeah. me a little bit about Alan Paver? Yeah, yeah, I played with <laughs> I played with Alan. He, um, yeah, he was great. He was great. He was uh, obviously uh, I think it was my second year that he had his testimonial. Um, which was very like well deserved for him. He he's been there for so long and and dug in some dark times for Pirates. Um, and obviously he was a hell of a player as well. And by all accounts, he's a great coach now as well. So um, how much of a, a legend he is, and how everyone sort of around the the championship scene um, knows about him, has heard about him, and, and what a character he actually is. Yeah, I mean that's my basic test to find out how much of a rugby fan someone is. Ask him, uh, do you know? Do you remember Alan Paver playing? And if they say who, I was like, okay. If they know anything about the championship, they all know, know a lot about Paige and definitely heard of him and a few stories, I'm sure. Yeah. So how did you find your time down in down in Cornish Pirates? How does it differ to being a premiership professional? Oh, well, <laughs> um, in terms of facilities, I mean, it's chalk and cheese. What you get at a professional club is is nothing. In, well, I say professional pirates are professional, but a Premiership club is isn't is nothing in comparison to to down at Pirates. Um, the the gym was barely big enough for I'd say six lads. We had to sort of do it in rotations, backs and forwards, would would split up into groups, and then. Um, I think it was four at a time the forwards would sort of feed in you do your first few exercises and then the next group of four would feed in as you're sort of finishing off and, and coming out it was um, yeah it was it was mad there's a squash court down there that the boys do their stretching in and uh, they, they had no such thing as foam rollers we had um, fizzy drink bottles filled with water um, because the club couldn't afford foam rollers so it was it was if you go from a professional environment down to that it's, it's a massive wake up call Having said that, what it teaches you is just to grind it out because you don't want to stay, with all due respect to Pirates, they know that they've got players that don't want to be there for their whole career. They want to go and taste the premiership. They want to go and taste good facilities. And what it does is it you know, it makes you hungry to train to yeah. get out of that league, basically, and play yourself out of that league into a, or certainly out of that, um, those facilities into a, into a team that uh, you know, got, got good stuff and uh, playing at a good level as well. Did, did you play in there? Playoff appearance when they lost to Bristol. Did they? Did I? No, London Welsh. London Welsh. They, they lost. No, they beat Bristol. Yeah, lost London Welsh, didn't they? In the final. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I um. So I, I, I was sat at home watching that game. I, I think I hadn't quite signed for Pirates, but I knew. In fact, no, that tell a lie. I'd been told by Bristol I wasn't being kept on, so I was watching them in the back of my mind cheering Pirates on <laughs> uh, knowing at the time I had no there was no communications from Pirates or myself about moving there so it was just a case of um, being a bit spiteful to be honest which is uncharacteristic <laughs> um, but yeah that was a hell of a game I can remember watching that on TV down uh, watching Bristol go down to Pirates and lose which has been a bit of a bogey ground to be honest for, for Bristol I, I, the three years that I was down there I think we played 
I think we played them twice at the Mene because on well, we played them three times, I think, yeah, and beat them every time. Um, so it's a bit of a bogey ground map for, for Bristol. I'm sure they um, they won't want to be going down there. Yeah, it, it's amazing, you know, because of all the rugby I watch, you know, the Six Nations, uh, European Cups, and so forth. I think the games which are probably the most exciting, they're well up there, are those championship playoffs. I think they're absolutely brilliant. And it's a shame that they've gone. I mean, I understand why they have gone. They needed yeah. to go. Yeah. But they were awesome. Oh, yeah. To be honest, I, the only one I played, actually played in was the um, the Bristol Exeter final. I sat on the bench on the first leg and came off on the second leg once again. There, we oh, were, no. We fell out of it that game. But I can just... Uh, Again, I was 18, 19. The expectation that I was going to go and play in the Premiership with Bristol was, was not really there. It, was, it wasn't going to happen. Um, so it, it was just all I remember feeling, not me personally, but around the squad, was just absolute nerves. They were dreading every second of it, I think, um, because everybody knew what was on the line. The expectations were that Bristol would go up. I think we mathematically we absolutely walked to the league, although there were a few obviously dodgy performances and games. But... We, we were top and flying and the boys beat London Welsh in the semi-final, which was a one-off game at the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, uh, I don't really remember much about that time. It was, it was a while ago, but I do remember just the absolute dread and nerves that were around the squad, knowing that, you know, it was a do or die. And I think the first game finished 9-6 or something that's like that. That's right, yeah, because Steno kicked all, all the points. Yeah, that's right. And it was um, it was a pretty wet game down at their place. And 9-6, you're thinking, oh, this is all right. We'll come up we'll come up to um, to Bristol and we'll sort of do a job. There's only three points. You're not going to base your, your <laughs> game in three points. might be a bit different if you're sort of 13 behind. But, yeah, obviously it didn't work out that way. And Gareth Steenson kicked Exeter through to the final and... and you know, when you, you talk back to guys that were at Exeter at the time and you hear about how they planned their season, it sort of makes sense that they peaked at the right time the way that they did everything and and um, obviously gone from strength to strength and shown what a good club they are since then. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I don't think we'll ever see another player like Gareth Steenson who has won both the Championship and the Premiership with the same club in the same stretch. Yeah, it's um, fair play to him and... But it just goes to show what what a good sort of club environment Exeter have that they keep guys. You know, I think Phil Dolman's another yeah. player played for them down in the Championship, and he and you know he's still playing pretty much week in week out down there. So but they're a club that you know respect their players and look after their players, and, and I, I guess offer them good money to stay there. But I'm sure the players would, would stay regardless. Yeah, and doesn't it just kind of go back to what we start, started with, which is opportunity is just as important as talent otherwise no one would be talking about Gareth Steens and it might never have happened well that's it I, I mean I don't know too much about um, Gareth's history and, and where he came from I know he's obviously yeah, I, mean, I, might, yeah we, I mean we might be doing a disservice there you know he might yeah, up sticks yeah. and want to stab from sale or something <laughs> yeah but, um, but he obviously played in the championship for at least a season and and I had to dig it out and that was before Exeter had the expectations that they obviously have now they were just the up and coming club when Bristol and Exeter are down fighting out in the championship. Um, I think at Bristol, when they were in the Prem the year before, and played them in pre-season, Exeter actually beat them in that pre-season game. So you sort of had the rumblings that there was something going on down there when they were getting this squad together. But, you know, you didn't realise how good a squad it was. And Gareth yeah. Stevenson was obviously an integral part of that, that winning culture that they sort of made down there. And he's obviously led it on since then, which is fair play to him because... Now, yeah, to be at one club for that amount of time and to win what he's won is very impressive. Well, hang on. During that final, uh, just so I've got this right, you were on the bench. You were, what, 19, something like that? 19, yeah. Okay. So, for you, I guess you were thinking, well, I'm going to get back there at some point anyway. Do you remember what the reaction was to the guys who were like, you know, mid-20s, 30s? Because for them, it must have been a gut punch. It's, uh, to be honest, I don't really remember. Um I remember being, nobody really knew what was going to happen next, which was that Bristol um, were going to lose a lot of their players um, because they'd obviously, I think things were in players' contracts that if they didn't go up, they could be released, etc. So that following season was pretty grim. A lot of guys took, 50, well, senior squad members took 50% pay cuts. So obviously, I, I don't know if there was a little bit of that in some guys' minds, but certainly walking into the change room, it was like, literally like someone had just been shot dead. 
um, it was it was horrible, and uh, that will stick with me for a long time. I don't really remember what was said after the game or anything like that, but I do remember walking in, into the changing room and um, just looking at some of the older guys' faces, and, and obviously the absolute um, the emotions of, of just losing a, a, essentially what was a cup final was the biggest game of a lot of players' careers. Yeah, um, and and it dawned on that we'd have to spend another. Well, not me personally, but the, the group would have to spend another season in the championship, which is, as everybody knows, not the. Um, oh, it's a grind, isn't it? To be in, but you know, it is what it is. But it was just, yeah, it was it was a horrible time. And what followed the following season, where guys had to take pay cuts and a lot of guys um, left to join other teams, it was uh, it was a pretty dark sort of six months following that defeat. Was there any gallows humour? Did anyone sort of break the ice with a you know a little wisecrack or or some such thing just to lift the spirits a bit? I don't think you could. I, I think you'd probably have been smacked if you even tried. <laughs> there was, um... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, it almost sounds a bit drastic, but genuinely livelihoods were on the line in that game. And I'm sure there were a few guys, not that I know, but I'm sure there were a few lads that left after that because they didn't get promoted and contracts weren't renewed whereas if they'd have got promoted they might have been offered something to uh, to stay there so yeah it was a pretty pretty gutting time I think stuff off the pitch had been set up for big celebrations um, but obviously they weren't to be and we had to watch all the Exeter fans running onto the pitch and, and lifting their players up for um, for what was in the end pretty well deserved promotion I think yeah yeah well I mean I, th- I think history proves that now with where Exeter are yeah, definitely. They, they've done it the right way. They, they built their stadium. They got their squad. They took their time. They planned the championship out very well. Um, from what I hear, they had a mini preseason over Christmas, um, which you know you'd have to be a history buff. But I think they lost three or four games over that Christmas period. But they knew they were going to, and they had it planned out that they you know they'd hit the ground running come the uh, the playoffs at the end of the season, and that was that was what happened in the end. And fair play to them. I think um, Bristol made the mistake, similar to sort of as we were speaking about earlier about picking the same team. They had a, a few older guys that they sort of churned out every week. Um, winning the league, coming top, didn't matter in the end. Um, so I think the mistake was made by making sure that they came top, and what they ended up doing was burning out a lot of players that they would have needed. Yeah, well, the game in the, in the the final stages, and and unfortunately, those guys seem to have just been burnt out a little bit. Yeah, well, and well, when they came to Premiership, I'm sure they had the biggest squad in the league. I mean, that doesn't mean the best squad in the league. It just means you know they had numbers, and they yeah. did. I, I th- I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Sure, sure, sure that's correct. But yeah, I'll, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I remember when we when I was first sort of part time at Bristol in the Prem, they. Um, Come the end of the, or near the end of the season when they were fighting out in relegation, they literally split the squad up into two, and they had essentially the guys that they were going to use for the prem games and, and split the other guys up uh, that they weren't even going to look at for selection. And, and that group, we sort of did our own training sessions, so um, it was they had enough numbers to to split the team into two easily. So I wouldn't be surprised if yeah, they definitely did have the, uh, the biggest squad in the league that year. That's that that's some fascinating insight. I, I had no idea about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was more so sort of the younger guys, um, but still guys, local boys as well, which I'm sure would give 110 percent to have kept Bristol in the league. But mm-hmm. at the time, they split the squad into two, and that, you know, you had your um, your first teamers, um, 
and the guys that they, they well, I guess it was almost like a 30-man squad where they had their players that they, they were going to back um, to keep them in the league and, and the rest of us obviously at that time I was just a dream to play for Bristol so I didn't really I didn't really understand the politics but looking back on it I'm sure there were a lot oh, of I bet there was. very yeah. angry and upset about how yeah how they were looked after yeah well how about yourself then because like you you were in the championship for a lot a, a long time did at any point it feel to you like maybe you're not going to get to get to that premiership level um my first year when I first moved down now I felt like I'd gone from Bristol that were obviously premiership contenders or promotion contenders um, and, and Pirates were obviously doing really well in the seasons leading up to my to my arrival um, <laughs> getting to the semi-finals and finals of the um, of, of the championship but it was always apparent that they were never going to get promoted because of their facilities and stuff like that and obviously having nothing in in um, Cornwall that could get them into the Premiership like what Welsh did with Oxford um, so uh, at that time I, I felt like it was a, a step backwards but in hindsight it, was, it definitely wasn't it was it was what I needed to, to develop um, and then that first year was just a year to sort of get in the team and um, it was only a one year contract so even then I was scrapping it out to try and make sure that I got another year at the end of that yeah and then at the end of that second year, my second year, Worcester shown an interest, um, but it hadn't materialised. I'd, I'd come up to see Dean Richard, uh, sorry, Dean Ryan and um, Carl Hogg, um, and spoke with them. But and they'd gone with a couple of other second rows. Um, I think it was Dan Sanderson, the ex Rotherham second row. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, my third season, they uh, they come back to me and offered me a contract and bought me out of my contract down at Pirates. Um, and, and that was that. So yeah, it was it was my first year. Obviously, there was no interest. Second year, Worcester shown an interest. So all of a sudden, I'm thinking, well, hang on, mate. There's there's something there. They've seen seen me do something well, so I just need to carry on doing what I'm doing. And another year in the championship of you know, developing myself and yeah, physically getting myself into good shape. That if something Premiership came along, I was ready to go. Um, and fortunately enough, that's that's what happened. So. A couple of lads uh, I've interviewed in the past, and I ask them, you know, what was what was your experience of your first pre- f- first Premiership game like? And a couple of them said the same thing, which I think is really interesting. They said not fast, but they described it as heavy. Everyone seems heavier, like moving rocks is heavier. Just everything is just a, a little bit. It takes a little bit more strength. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree to be honest. Um, I'd I'd say this from what I remember. This is four years ago now, but. From what I remember the championship, it's not, believe it or not, that much more physical. Mm. If I was speaking to a guy that was looking to sign for a Prem club from the championship, I'd say to him, it's not that much more physical. What, you, what it is, is relentless. So it's that physicality for 80 minutes as opposed to for 60 minutes that you might get in the championship because, you know, your condition is not quite the same level. So teams drop off in the last sort of 20, 15 minutes. Yeah. Is in the Premiership, it's relentless. The subs that come on are just as big as the ones that go off. Um, and, the, and I'd say the game is a little bit quicker. Um, maybe the Championship's a bit more frantic because of that conditioning element. You know, guys are tiring, so you get the, the quicker guys can exploit a bit more space, whereas in the Prem, everyone's sort of relatively you yeah. know, fit and, and can last 80 minutes if needs be. And obviously teams have tactics to, to try and, um, no opposition wingers and the nippy ones come those last five ten minutes a game. So yeah, I wouldn't disagree to be honest. It was a bit of a shock. It was a Friday night game, which I love anyway because the atmosphere seems to be a bit different on a Friday. I don't know what it is. It just has that bit more buzz about it. Definitely does. Um, and it was at home as well, which you know made a huge difference. And it was that Northampton game where Tom Heathcote kicked the last minute drop goal. Um, so I, I remember that game. I think I made twenty odd tackles, which which is ridiculous. I've never made that before. <laughs> so I remember being absolutely knackered come full time. But um, but yeah, I, I think I think it was Kieran Brooks ran into me at one point, and my sort of back just shuddered. And I that, at that point realised that it is a, probably a little bit more physical than Championship, but not anything drastic. But it's just continuous. It just comes and it comes and. That year, the Northampton team were just rolling around the corner and it kept coming, it kept coming, it kept coming. And I think that was sort of a bit of a metaphor for the rest of the season as well. Yeah, and, and Kieran Brooks is a massive man, actually. I mean, if you're going to pick someone in the, you know, in, 
in in the Premiership as you know a um, prototypical Premiership player. That might be it. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was a welcome to the Prem for me, and something uh, something I won't forget. Having stars like that running down my channel. Now, this is a bit of a weird question, right? But yeah, you know, when you when you step up, up a level, either as an eighteen-year-old going into Bristol, or you know maybe going into Worcester, starting that game, have you ever been intimidated? Intimidating game. Carl Holger, our head coach, had, uh, I was calling the lineups that day, so I was a bit nervous anyway. But um, Hoggy had made quite a big deal in the week leading up about Christian Day, the Northampton second row. <laughs> yeah, Knowing his line out experience and his line out. Um, calling ability and everything and, and it was probably the most nervous I've ever been in the game because it was my Prem debut, it was my Worcester debut on playing against an experienced second row who knows his way around the line out has probably watched my last ten line outs for Pirates, probably watched a whole of pre-season's line outs for Worcester and I just remember absolutely um, petrified of, of even trying to call them out. They went well on the day, I think, I think we lost one on the day um, probably an over for never the caller's fault so um, it went pretty well, but yeah, that was the most nervous I've ever been, and, and yeah, since then I've sort of been all right. I think I've four years is obviously not that long for most Premiership players, but for me, no, I I think you know that's probably not far off the average Premiership career when you look at it across the league. Yeah, maybe I, I think I'm I'm just over fifty fifty games, maybe approaching sixty. Probably. I guess I've amounted a decent amount of experience. Yeah. But, yeah, it was it was definitely that first game that that's made me um, the most nervous in any game I've ever played for for Worcester. It was just um, yeah, I felt like a little kid coming up against an international on that day. It's just the way the week went. Being Christian was being bigged up, somewhat wicked by our coach. I'm surprised yeah. he didn't try and sign him, but he, um, it went well. And, and since then, I've sort of felt a little bit more comfortable in this league. I've obviously played against people like Mario Toji and George Cruz. Um, George Cruz is probably the hardest guy to have gone against in a line out, certainly um calling line outs against him. He reads him very well so um and felt all right in those sort of games. So it's not been too bad to be honest, yeah. So is the line out that you know your your point of pride? Yeah, yeah, I've always been a line out caller. This year's been a little bit different. I've had to take a backwards step. Um some of the games I've played in I've not been the, the line out corner, which is it's been a bit frustrating because that's the one thing that I sort of pride myself on, certainly off the pitch in terms of analysis. That'll be the one thing that I'll I'll definitely sit in front of the laptop or computer and, and go through opposition line outs and and often I'll be involved in the meetings for line outs um for the weekends, even if I'm not calling them. So I've always sort of prided myself on that and, and I enjoy it to be honest. It's 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 like a game of chess. It is, isn't it? It's brilliant. It is it is it sounds <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know anything about lineouts, you think I'm an idiot, but it is exciting, you know. Especially when you're going to an international and you're sort of trying to prove a point. What goes on around the pitch, I suppose a lot of people can do similar things around the pitch, but the lineouts is where you sort of, the second rows stand um, stand apart, I think. So if you're a good lineout caller, it makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I do some, because I, I think I, I'm with you here, I love lineouts. I'm not particularly good at lineouts, but I just love lineouts. I, I love this. Uh, uh, I, I do love the strategy around them. I do yeah. wonder though, like, do rugby players and you know the rugby community in general do we do we spend too much time looking at lineups and these set pieces because they're not exactly you know most of the game. Most of it is running around hitting rucks and you know open field stuff. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, for example, the rabbit week, hole. This week we played Exeter. Exeter. I don't know how many lineouts they gave us in the game, but we worked out something like they only give you eight lineouts. They just don't kick the ball out. Is that right? Um, so eight lineouts. We did um, 160 lineout jumps that week. Bearing in mind we trained two days. So that, for eight lineouts, we did 80 lineouts a day. <laughs> that that's staggering. What? Yeah, and that's that's not unusual. So again, you're going back to the supporters and supporters sort of piping up and stuff. You sort of read their comments about how shambolic our lineouts might have been on this weekend or that weekend and you think well actually there's a lot that can go wrong in a lineout. yeah um, there is trying iron out but sometimes a gust of wind will take the ball not straight well that's a line out loss that cannot it can be helped in some ways but it's also a bit of a freak accident but yeah we, we certainly put the hours in 100 yeah it was 160 lineouts um that we put in in two days and, and like i said that's not unusual that's pretty norm for us um which is something that we, we were trying to bring down. 
unfortunately, for every mistake you make, you have to do that line out again because, you know, hookers need timings, jumpers, yeah. line out callers need to know that the hooker knows that call. So the moment somebody messes up, you've got to do that line out again. And all of a sudden, 160 line outs later, you've got yourself prepped for eight line outs on the weekend. So, yeah, I do think we probably do a little bit too much. And having sat in a lot of line out meetings, you go through games and games and hours and hours worth of analysis looking at line outs and if this guy does this then we can do that and if this guy does this and we can do that and then come the weekend that guy's not playing yeah yeah again your line out research has sort of gone down the drain a little bit yeah it's it is it is difficult um, it is a difficult one particularly with defense because you can prepare to the nth degree and they might just do something completely different i heard that a few seasons ago wasps were just reinventing their their line outs for every third of the season so complete new calls, complete, completely new everything because they thought so many people were going to be, well, actually it might have been more than three years ago. I mean like five years ago because they yeah. thought, well, there's so much analysis out there. We'll just change everything completely. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we, we, um, we've sort of flirted with a little bit. Um, the, the cameras now, they're set, like obviously when TV are on there, so I think there's three or four different angles. Um, microphones on the uh, oh, sorry the rest microphones can pick up whatever call you're making in the line out and you know sometimes it's easy to put two and two together and work it out so yeah i think there is a need for it to be changed every now and again the problem is with that is that changing your structure or changing your calls um means that you need to learn them all over again yeah um, and and anyone who's played rugby yourself you know is a new is a language you, I could sit down with a Worcester player and talk in absolute jargon to anybody else. They wouldn't understand a word I'm saying, but everything that I'm saying is clear as day to the other guy because of the language used. Well, if you've got to reinvent that language every six months or four months, it, it, you know sometimes it can lead to a lot of mistakes. Yeah, and I think another thing. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because I don't think people appreciate how much effort goes into this. There's a couple of academy lads playing up at Sale Sharks, and I know those lads will go down to Sale FC ground and throw 100 balls, come rain, wind, or shine, uh, and they do that every day. Yeah, uh, we're not too different down here, to be honest. Um, it's a bit nicer down here, so we don't have the, the rain, wind, or shine. <laughs> yeah. a bit more time down there. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, it's difficult because... I've read a few books and, and everyone says, oh, it's a 10,000 hours of this and it's it's perfect practice. I don't think there's any such thing as perfect practice. And sometimes it's easy for a hooker to throw on a target that's not moving when you've got no wind, you know, might be inside, for example, or down here. The best way for hookers to throw, I think, is just going live, you know, when guys are jumping. The problem you have then is if, if you're a jumper doing 180 jumps mm-hmm. a, a week, you, at some point something's going to give, whether it's your back or your knees. Um, but yeah, certainly we, we've got Methan Davis, our, our scrum coach, who also helps with the hookers down here at Worcester, and they um, they have tabled or timetabled um, sessions. I think it's normally on a, a Tuesday at the end of the day or a Wednesday. Um, well, they'll do extra line out throwing, and, and and he works with them. They've all got different techniques. They all like to throw slightly differently. You've got some guys who like to throw with a bit more shape, so they'll put a bit more lob on it. You've got um, other guys who like to to throw hard and fast. So you know. The, you've got to work your, your line-out um, menu on the weekend around that as well, which is um, a bit challenging. It can be anyway. So how much uh, leeway do you guys as players have in deciding what line-outs you're going to run? Um, well, at the start of the season down here at Worcester, we, we pretty much ran it with Rory, our head coach. Um, unfortunately, things didn't go to plan. Um, so there were a few changes in terms of how, how our line-out went or worked. Um, which seemed to have made a bit of a difference. Um, Rory took on a few more of the line out calls himself, a bit of the analysis, and and he would often ask, invite us into his office, and, and we would go through the through the his menu, and then we'd also chip in with anything that we've seen. So it's probably a, you know almost like a sixty forty. Rory being the sixty that the line out callers, I think there's three or four of us that go in now that will sit down and come up with the rest of it. And we'd have all sort of sat down in front of the laptops or whatever and, and gone for opposition line outs. And again, it sometimes depends on who's playing on the weekend. Guys have different ways of calling. Guys have different preferences. You know, you might be a good on the spot jumper. So prefer to have a call that's on the spot as opposed to shooting forward. Or you might have a hooker that prefers to, to hit you shooting forward as opposed to hitting you on a log ball. So you've got to, 
you've got to take that into consideration. And one thing that we've learned over the last sort of three or four weeks is, is conditions and personnel as well. On the weekend, a couple of weeks ago, we had a young Isaac Miller coming off the bench who hadn't really played any Premiership rugby all season, but came off the bench after I think it was 20 minutes against Newcastle. And um, Callum Green, the experienced lockup there, sort of took our line out apart a little bit in many ways. And, and so you've got to take that into consideration yeah. as well. Who, who's the backup and and what's their experience and then can we sort of mould some calls around them so when they come on we get them in the game and a few simple calls often the front ball and, and get them use them in so when you're defending a line out this is nerdy now do you have any do you have any tells that you look for from opposition jumpers to know when when you think they're going to go um you, you can do, but it's, it's difficult to, to implement that into your like defensive system because obviously that guy might not be playing on the weekend. Yeah. The, same the team comes out late on in the week that you know whether or not you can use that, and by that time it's it's normally a bit too late. You want to you tend to want to do a bit more defensive line actually later on in the week. But yeah, there are certain certain um, you know, the way that people stand can sometimes be a bit of a giveaway um, as to where they're going to go. Um, won't give away. Any of our trade secrets, just yet. We're <laughs> yeah. a bit of a relegation scrap. Well, so we need we need all the secrets we can keep. But yeah, there, there's certain teams that have a certain way of, of calling the lineup, or certain players, sorry, that have a certain way of standing in the lineup that can maybe give away where it's going to go. But ultimately, you, you never really know where it's going. You sort of just try and mark a zone and and hope that you know you pick the right zone. Now, you, you don't need to give away any trade secrets here. I don't even want any names. <laughs> but can you give me uh, an example, maybe, of when you have got, come, come up against an opposition guy and you just know what what he is doing and why and why you knew what, what he was doing? Um, yeah, so... I mean, you can give me names. Feel free. Well, but, no, 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 I won't give us names. Unfortunately, we've still got this team to come, so I can't. Um, but... There's there's one team where the, their front guy will stand just like the line out a little bit, and you can sort of read that he's going to shoot, or the guy behind him is going to shoot in front of him. Now there's two things that will happen: he'll either turn and lift him from behind, or he'll turn and lift the guy that was behind that guy. Uh, yeah. So you can sort of see that he slightly stood out the line out, and something's going to happen. And by sort of just doing your analysis, you understand that there's probably two outcomes. Um, so you need to try and mark both spots, which is what we, you know, we'll have a little guy in the middle who pivots. Mm. Um, you can either turn in front or turn behind and sort of just mirror what they do. But yeah, they're, 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 there's that sort of thing. And sometimes line-out callers in particular, if they're calling to themselves, they'll face straight onto the hooker. When it's not to them, they'll maybe be a little bit more side-on because you know, they need to do a dummy lift or a dummy jump. Or, you know, some sort of thing. So, um, yeah, without, you know, I don't think I'll give them too much away there, but there, there is certainly some teams and some players and some movements, I think, is probably the big one. It's the movement that you can see happening before before it does. Now, you've obviously accumulated all this knowledge through a lifetime of rugby, but is there anyone that stands out who's given you really good tips on this kind of stuff? Yeah, I think Roy Winters, when I was down at Bristol, um, I don't know if it was just me, but he seemed to take me under his wing a little bit. Um, and it was at that time where I, I was sort of beginning to call the line out um, in A-League games. Um, I was beginning to call the line out um, where well, I was calling the line out a lot for the, for the team I was draw Reds with. So that was obviously something that they were looking at developing was, was my line out call in. And, and he was in charge of the, the first team line out. And I would often sit down with him at um, analysis and, and just watch how he sort of jotted down all the movements and how he would sort of correlate them together and come up with a plan on how that week they were going to defend or what movements they were going to defend because you soon realise you can't defend everything. Um, teams once they know, you you know, you might be a mirror defence. Once they see how you mirror that, be it, you're just throwing six, seven movements and then all of a sudden bumping into each other. So he, he was good for that and he took the time out to sit down with me and, and sort of explain his workings out and... Um, and help me with how I was going to develop. And, and I would often be the guy calling opposition line-outs against the first team, um, in particular that first championship year. Um, so, yeah, he was probably the, the best one that I've worked with in that regard, definitely. He was, uh, he was really good. Awesome. Uh, just, just bringing it to the present day, then. Yeah. Um, you guys are doing better than last year. 
Uh, I think that's actually statistically true. I think you've got more points. But it does feel like the Premiership this year is also a lot better than it was last year. There's no two ways about that. Um, is, there, is there a sense of nervousness around um, around the squad? Or are you all basically coming in and you're pretty buoyant because you know you are doing better than... You know, it is a better team, I'd say, than, than last year's version of Worcester. Yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think this is the, the best squad that I've been involved in. Um, you know, you talk, we spoke earlier about first choice, second choice, third choice, but I think there's a, a genuine call for your first, second and third choice in every position to be good enough for the Premiership, which maybe hasn't been the case in the last few years. Where I think last year we only had two loose heads, two senior loose heads, whereas this year we've got three. So mm. straight away you, you're stronger in that position. But yeah, I, I don't know if there's nervousness. Um, we sort of laugh and joke that the coaches should just leave it to the players. We've been here before three years and <laughs> yeah. experiencing doing the great escape. So it's a bit, you know, a little bit of a joke, but I don't think there is nervousness. No. Um, and I think it's because there's so much left of the season. And, be, and, and even though if you look at the table, you're going to say it's a two horse race, which it may be, but I think, I don't when, think it is. I, no, think, I think there's exactly. four teams involved now. Yeah, and, and I think that's what we're sort of looking at as a positive, really. Whereas in previous years, it's, it's been a two-horse race. It's been London Irish and Worcester, or it's been Bristol and Worcester, and you, you, you're scrapping it out amongst each other. Whereas at the moment, you're scrapping it out amongst four of you. So it doesn't seem like it's... I don't know, it feels different. It just doesn't seem like it's um, as much of a concern this season as it has been in previous years. Yeah, uh, I, I, because you know that you, you could play well, and other teams play badly, and all of a sudden it's them that's scrapping out down at the bottom as well. Yeah, I mean it's such a close season that a couple of wins either way, and you're out of danger. But on the other hand, a couple of wins new, uh, uh, for Newcastle, um, you know they're going to be putting a, a lot of pressure on, on you boys. Conversely, I think Tigers are right in the mix, and Bristol could be right, right in the mix. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at Sale, I think Sale a few weeks back, maybe five weeks back, we're looking in a bit of trouble as well. Yeah, well, Sale were, were bottom of the table at one point. And, and now you look at them, they've, they've shot up. I think Carla Quinn's had a dodgy patch at one point where you're thinking, because I think at the start of this, well, halfway through the season, it was a two-horse race at the top, and then maybe Gloucester were the only other team that you, you think aren't going to get pulled into anything dodgy. Whereas now I think the, the league split up into sort of thirds again you've got your top four your middle four and then you've got maybe maybe sort of four or five at the bottom that are scrapping out um, but realistically that middle block at the moment look like they're they're going to be safe and, and they're playing well enough to, to stay up but the, the rest of us yeah we're all in it and like you said if, if Newcastle who have just won two on the banks um, continue to play the way they are and, and grinding out results then you know other teams like ourselves are going to get sucked into it um, so yeah it's, it's, it's definitely the most competitive league i Last year, you, you had your top two, and then you had a, your next eight, and then you had your bottom two. It was um, whereas this year, yeah, it's it's sort of real scrappy at the moment, and I think you can probably see that in results. There's some tight games because teams teams know how important bonus point or losing bonus points are, especially at this stage of the season where you sort of you're running out of games a little bit. Yeah, I've never seen a Premiership like this one where everyone has got such complete teams, such a settled team, and, you know, so, so so many good players. I mean, Newcastle go down, they're going to go down with, uh, you know, a handful of internationals. If it yep. happens to you again, you've got a handful of internationals. You've got the England starting centre. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, it's, it's, it's weird, and obviously Leicester, historically, have always been that top four team. Um, so, to have them down here is a bit of a shock, and I'm, I'm sure that might be one of the reasons why Closing the league's been mentioned because a team like Leicester going down would be just <laughs> yeah, be not going to happen. It, you know, or a bath with their stadium um, not being fit to come back up as well. So I'm sure if one of those big teams start to really slide down the league and genuinely, you know, really do look like they might be struggling to stay in the league, then that you might be looking at a, yeah. a closing Premiership. I mean, I would like ring fencing. But I do appreciate it would come at the expense of the drama, which you know for you is not great, but uh, for me as a spectator, it's, it, it, you know, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it does add a bit of spice. It, it makes games competitive. If this if this league was closed off, and you got these four teams down at the bottom, realistically, what you're playing for, you're not playing for much. You're not going to win the league. You're probably not going to get in the top six um, for, the, for the the main European competition. So. 
it certainly keeps all the fixtures competitive, especially when it's so close. Obviously, if there was a team down at the bottom, like London Welsh, for example, a few years back that couldn't get a win, then it makes it a bit, a bit of a mockery. But when it's this competitive, it certainly shows just how good this Premiership League is. Yeah, completely agree. Right, well, uh, I'll leave you with one last question. Give me a prediction of where, uh, of where you're going to finish. And if you want to find more of your fiery contributions on uh, Twitter, where do we find that? Oh, that's a good point, actually. I've actually changed my partner told me I needed to change my um, my Twitter because it was too childish. And now I've actually changed <laughs> it to Darren Barry 90. Um, yeah, I've been a bit quiet the last few weeks, but I'm sure I'm sure as frustrations boil over, there may be a few more tweets aimed at, I don't know, supporters or somebody. Um, predictions, do you know, I generally don't know. It could, we could finish bot bottom I think or we could finish ninth it is that sort of league as, as we mentioned how tight it is at the moment teams like Leicester if they continue to slide down the league it, you know, there's always hope that we um, that we can get a few good wins at home and pick up some decent results away from home as well so I'll go with 10th um, mm-hmm. which at the start of the season we were aiming for a top 6 so it would be a bit of a disappointment but the way the league is at the moment I think boys would be pretty happy with 10th Excellent Darren Absolutely loved, loved, loved having you on. We're gonna to have to do it again, um, again sometime. Yes, please. No worries. Good. Thank you, Darren. Uh, thank you very much for that. That's absolutely.